Amen. Please be seated. Let's turn to God's Word, to the book of Romans, where we've been going through that for a wee while just now. Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And page 1137, if you have the church Bible, it's, we're going to look at chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, normally I put in a, a thing saying this is what we're going to be looking at uh, weeks in advance, and I would thought we would look at Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 13, but um, we're only going to get to verse 4 if we even get there, because um, I think this is really, really important for each person here, because what we're going to look at is what I'm calling the four verbs of salvation, four things that you need to do, if you like, in order to be in heaven, in order to know salvation on earth, in order to know Jesus Christ. And I, I, for me, this is just, it's the gospel and, it's, and it is uh, wonderful. Now, up to this point, what Paul has done is he's been answering questions. Why don't people believe what's, what's happening? How do you become a Christian? What's the relationship between the law and the gospel and so on? And one of the big questions he's had to answer is, I'm a Jew, a lot of you are Jews, so, but lots of Jews, the majority of Jews don't believe. Jesus was a Jew. But why don't they believe? And in chapter 9, he's been saying, well, God chooses and God has chosen some uh, and not others. But in chapter 10, what he does, he doesn't say, okay, you just leave that. He now comes and he's saying, well, this is what you should do. And that's why I'm calling this the four verbs of salvation. And the first one is in, in verse 1. And it's, it's really fascinating to me. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. The first is desire. And I want to think of it in two ways. It's the desire, first of all, that he has for his own people. That's something that many of us in the church have lost. And I'll tell you why. Because we look inward, we look at ourselves, we talk about wanting to protect ourselves, have the right to worship and so on. But what should burden us and what should bother us is that people are lost. And Paul is particularly concerned for his own people, the Jewish people. He's not writing the Jewish people off. His heart's desire and prayers for the Jewish people to be saved. And can I say this, that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but everywhere he went, he went first of all to the Jews. And... Do you know, the, the previous minister of this church many years ago was a famous guy called Robert Murray McShane. He spent an hour in prayer each day for the Jewish people. And there weren't exactly many Jews in Dundee at that time. And you say, well, how, why? You know what God did with McShane? He took him. He, when McShane got severely ill and depressed, to be honest, that's what happened to him. He had a kind of breakdown. And uh, the church decided, you know what? We need you to get away for a while. We're going to send you to Israel. And this was not a case of easy jet. 
This was a six-month journey that nearly killed him three times. And he went there, and he went through Hungary, and he went in other places. Um, to this day in Hungary, there are Jewish people who became Christians, or have, their descendants became Christians through McShane's ministry. He had this burden for the Jews. He had this burden. Paul had this burden for his own people. And we, if we are Christians, if you are a Christian, ask God to give you a burden for people, a burden for your family, a burden for the people of this city if you live in Dundee. If you're part of the work in Charleston, you pray for the people in Charleston. I like walking around this city and I like looking at the different buildings and thinking who's in there and sometimes I know who's in there and praying for the different people. And I think that is really important that we long for the salvation of others And I think sometimes the reason we don't long for the salvation of others is we don't believe that they're lost. And that's a fundamental error. It is a fundamental mistake. My heart's desire and prayer. You will pray for people. Now, again, I ask simply if we do that, if we pray for people. I was reminded of that today when, you know how, for those of you who've got Facebook and you've got um, someone's birthday comes up. And the birthday came up of a lady who, about 35 years ago in Livingston, uh, Annabelle and someone else, we were on a mission team. Uh, it, it must have been more than 35 years ago because we weren't married. So Annabelle was going around the door with this guy and they knocked on a door. And uh, I remember hearing that, if I remember the story right, that the lady came to the door and he said, hi, we're from the local free church. And she went, oh, no, 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 no. Um, uh, we're the Catholics. We worship the Pope. You worship the Queen. Uh, so theology, a wee bit mixed up. And if you're from the west of Scotland, you'll understand. And the guy, uh, a guy called Kenny, who's now a free church minister, actually, just opened his jacket. And there was a Celtic top. He, he was known as Kenny Celtic. Uh, and so that took the girl, the lady, a bit by surprise. Anyway, they got talking to her. And I remember that they came back and they told us about this lady. And I remember that without being asked to, every single prayer meeting during that mission, people prayed for her. Well, she became a Christian. And she was in touch recently, actually. And uh, it's her birthday today. And she's just saying that she's still a believer and still following the Lord. And I do think that prayer is absolutely vital. It's not like it's mechanical. If you pray for someone, then they're definitely going to become a Christian. But I'm saying... If God gives you a burden for someone, you pray for people. And here's Paul's heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Desire, there's a desire there. Now, let me just say one other thing about that desire. One of the reasons, if you're here, that you're not a Christian is simply this. You don't want to be one. You don't have the desire. You say, oh, God will make me a Christian. No, if you don't have the desire... Jesus invites us to come to him. And we do need that desire. What does desire lead to? Desire often leads to zeal. Desire is about passion. Look at verse 2. That's the second thing. We need the desire and we need to know. I can testify about them. They're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Now, here's an interesting part of our culture. We tend to think if someone's sincere, 
that that's wonderful. Isn't that great? They're so sincere. And if someone's passionate about something, you know, it, not that I'm ever going to get on MasterChef, but if I did get on MasterChef, I know what to say. I'm passionate about food. You know, what does this mean to you? Oh, it means the world. You know, I'm not going to be saying, I can't be bothered. To be honest, if I win, I win. If I don't win, I don't win. There's a whole lot of things more important. Um, that's not going to get me through, I don't think. So I say you're passionate about it. We tend to admire passion in people. Oh, look at these fanatical football supporters or these passionate fans, people who will queue for, for hours or days to, to get to see their favorite group. And even in religion, we might say, well, these people are very passionate. They're very sincere. And in our culture, it's almost a crime to question anyone's sincerity or challenge anyone's sincerity. But we need to be really careful because zeal not based on knowledge can be a really dangerous thing. Zeal by itself is neutral. It can be good or bad. But when it's not based on knowledge, it can be really harmful. By the, other, by the way, another thing we need to say about zeal, we might say about another Christian, oh, they're very zealous. And what we mean by that is they're very enthusiastic and they're full of fire and they're full of life and aren't they wonderful? That just might be their temperament. They may just be the kind of person who has a, a temperament that way. Some people are just lethargic. You could actually get someone who... Um, do you know the, remember the Ricky Fulton thing, the Reverend I am Jolly? And oh, I just want to praise the Lord. And it's kind of, it was, he was taking the mickey really out of a perception of Scottish clergymen, which may have had, like all caricatures, an element of truth. But sometimes you can be, you know, you're not exactly bouncing, but you can be full of zeal. And sometimes you can be a very bouncy person, but not be full of zeal or at least the right kind of zeal. But what Paul is talking about here are his fellow Israelites. I can testify about them. They're zealous for God. And it's a technical term he's using. The term is the zealot. Someone who has a life and death devotion to Yahweh. Someone who's absolutely committed, someone who since the days of the massacres of the Maccabees is prepared to give their life for their faith, for their religion. And Paul says, I can testify about them because Paul knows he was one. Notice how many times he does say this. Galatians 1, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. Or in Acts 26, 9, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Or Philippians 3, 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Or Acts 22, 3, I am a Jew, says Paul, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. When Stephen was martyred, Paul was there, taking part in it. What was Stephen's crime? He criticized the temple courts and he criticized the law of Moses. And as far as Paul was concerned, that was enough for you to die. We can think of religious zealotry in that way today. 
you are not going to live long if you go to Saudi Arabia and say that you think Mohammed was a fake. That's, you're going to be condemned. We can admire zeal. We can say that they are such a zealous person, they are so sincere. Why should I really question them? But sincerity without knowledge can be really dangerous. Let me give the example. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that the suicide bombers in 9-11 were cowards. They were not cowards. In one sense, they were incredibly brave people because they were prepared to give their lives for something they believed in. They were very, very zealous, but their zeal was not based on knowledge and it was incredibly harmful. Proverbs 19.2 says this, Desire without knowledge is not good. How much more will hasty feet miss the way? So don't think that just because you're full of zeal or full of enthusiasm, that that is sufficient. You need knowledge. Augustine puts it beautifully. He says, it's better to limp the right way than to run with all our might the wrong way. And here's something I think for us as Christians in the church. We can have an active church. We can have one with lots of people in excitement. We can have one doing lots of things. And yet it can have little impact on the community or on the nation because it is a zeal without knowledge. How do we know whether our zeal is based on knowledge? Well, I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones on this and I, I, I found what he said really stimulating. I can't say all that he said I'm just going to say a, a little bit of it. He suggests certain tests. In fact, he suggests, I think it's 14, but I'm not going to give you four, all 14. I'll just give you a couple of them. Where there is a greater emphasis on doing rather than being, then it's likely that that's a zeal without a knowledge. Where there's a greater emphasis on doing rather than being. Where it is the activity rather than the truth which is at the center of life. Where methods, organizations, and the machinery are more prominent. There can also be a zeal that's of the flesh, a lightness, a frivolity, a kind of superficiality where there's no sense of awe, no sense of reverence, no sense of holiness. False zeal also dislikes being questioned. And leads to fanaticism and intolerance. Lloyd-Jones says this. Men and women are always restless people. And they are restless because they're living on their own activity. Their energy. Their enthusiasm. Their own sincerity. You burn out with your own energy. Your own enthusiasm. Your own sincerity. You have this zeal. But it is not a zeal according to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The most important thing we need as a church, the most important thing you need as a Christian is to grow in the knowledge of Christ. It is not to be more zealous. True zeal is never put on. It is always the result of being. So we need knowledge. We need the desire and we need to know. And again, here's something that's incredibly counterintuitive in our culture. Because there's an attack on the idea that we need precise and clear knowledge of the truth. Our age dislikes definitions and precision. We like feeling. 
So you go to a church and you'll say, well, that made me feel really good. I want to go there. But what happens if six months down the road or a year down the road, you feel really good or then you start feeling really bad? What does that mean? We are a lazy age that wants entertainment. But we need precision in engineering. I hope to, um, maybe hope's the wrong word, I have to take a plane tomorrow. Now imagine if I decided, you know this, I'm going to speak to the pilot. Or I'm actually going to speak to the guy who made the plane. Say, tell me, how did you make this plane? How does it fly? And he says, you know this, I, I did a degree in engineering. I've done all the stuff. But when I was making this particular plane, I couldn't be bothered too much. So I just bunged a few things together and, you know, just went with the flow, how we felt it was going to go. I ain't getting on that plane. And if the pilot, I says, what navigation system do you use? He says, me? I just get up in the air, point at the right direction, then we go and hope we get there. I ain't flying in that plane. Because you demand precision. Um, I was very, very impressed. I, I've never been there before. And those of you who are dental students, I did want to tell you this. I was down at the dental hospital this week. I was so impressed with the people there. Um, I was seeing a consultant and a doctor. didn't realize you've got dental doctors, but you do. And there were three students in as well. I was utterly fascinating for me and so I was asking lots of questions and just talking about things and I think the appointment probably took three times as long as it should have but again what struck me was just the precision and the detail and the concern and how the doctor and the consultant batted off one another to try and make sure have we got this right and yet when it comes to faith when it comes to religion when it comes to belief Ah, just how you feel. We don't need precision. We need precision in truth. Verse 3. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. We need to know. We need the desire and we need to know. That's why you come and hear God's word. That's why you come on a Sunday morning and evening to hear God's word because you're learning and knowing and learning and knowing. It's not just uh, mental knowledge. It's grasping and understanding and uh, looking at precision, really. It's very important. If you, if you go a little bit off target, then at the beginning you seem quite close. But as time goes on, you're far, far away so we need that. But then verse 3, we need to submit. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What didn't they know? They didn't know the righteousness that comes from God. Now that's what Paul has been writing about in this letter. And he's challenging it. Here's another thing. People will say of someone, He's such a gracious man, or she's such a gracious woman. What do they mean? They mean they never argue with anybody. That's not graciousness. That's not the grace of Jesus or the grace of Paul. We need to come to a knowledge of the truth. That knowledge is not a complete understanding of the Christian faith, but there's a minimum that we need to understand. As Paul has already said in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. 
first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. There are two very simple and straightforward things in terms of what we do with religion. I listened to two church services this morning, and they they taught me, again, the relevance of this, because both of them taught a way of righteousness which is not according to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? They do not know or do not submit to the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ. There are two ways. One is you build your own righteousness through good works and religious observance. That inevitably leads to self-righteousness, something that's condemned, I think, more than anything in the New Testament. They are pleased with themselves. But the most chilling words, I think, in the whole Bible are when Jesus says at the end that he will say on the day of judgment, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And they'll say, haven't we prophesied in your name? And they'll say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And in your name done many wonderful deeds. And you know what Jesus does at the end? He doesn't say to them, no, you didn't. He doesn't say you got it wrong. He said, I don't care. I just don't care that you did these things. I'm not interested. I never knew you. All our good works are like filthy rags. And I would feel as though personally I had failed enormously if anyone walked away from this church thinking, I just need to do better. I just need to read the Bible more. I just need to pray. I, I, I need to try harder. I need to stop doing that and I need to start doing this. No, that's not the way of Christ. The most holy, good person in this congregation, our goodness and our acts are like filthy rags. But there's another way, and that's to receive the righteousness that comes as a free gift from Christ through faith in Christ. And that's what the submission is. We have to submit. And what we're submitting to is... We're submitting to God as our Lord and as our master. We're not negotiating with him. When you join a football team, you submit to the rules. When you join the army, you submit to the rules. And submitting to God is accepting God's way of salvation. All of us instinctively want to say, Lord, you do this and you've done this and you've done this, but this is what I'm going to do for you. And almost this is what you owe me. And God says no. This is not the way of righteousness. The whole of Romans has been teaching that this is not the way of God's righteousness. The Jews, but not just the Jews. Many people who profess to be Christians. Muslims, in a a strange kind of way, atheists and agnostics, all seek salvation through their own works. But that's not what Christianity is. And so the last thing is in verse 4. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Maybe this is not a verse that you have memorized. I would really encourage you to memorize it. 
Christ is the end of the law, so there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. It's a verse to praise God for. Our great problem is not our particular sins, but our standing before God. So you could be here today and you might be saying, do you know what? My big problem is this. I have a big problem with lust. I have a big problem with temper. I have a big problem with greed. I have a big problem with pride. I have a big problem with this particular issue. Some of you may be here and your major priority is your work situation tomorrow or a relationship that you have that you feel that's going wrong. And all these things are important. And all these things are essential. But your absolute major problem, the thing that dominates everything else is your standing before God. And that's why when Paul says Christ is the end of the law, and he uses a word called telos. Christ is the telos of the law. And it means two things. It can mean the conclusion of the law. So back in chapter 9, verse 31, Israel pursued the law to attain righteousness. Verse 32, Israel pursued righteousness by works. And he's saying, it's the goal. It's like you have a goal in life. You're on a diet. You want to get down at 13 stone or something. I wish. You want to get down there, 12 stone or whatever it is. You get your goal. You've achieved it. You, you under, we, we understand that. Well, in this sense, Christ is the end of the law. What was the purpose of the law? What was the aim of the law? The aim of the law is to show us God's holiness and God's character and how we are expected to behave, but it can never save us. Ultimately, its purpose was to take us to Christ who can save us. He is the end of the law. He is the purpose of the law. So Paul's writing to the Jews and he's saying, there isn't another way of salvation. You cannot be saved by obeying the law. You're only saved by Jesus Christ. And he's not denigrating the law. He's saying the law leads us to Christ. Telos also has this idea of termination. It's finished. The Mosaic covenant is entered, is, 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 is finished. When people come and say, oh, doesn't it say in the Bibles that you shouldn't wear clothing that's got mixed fabric? And I don't know what I want to do with such people. Well, I do know what I want to do with them, but it's not very Christian. Um, and, and I just say, no, you need to read the whole Bible. You need to understand the Mosaic covenant is finished. It's terminated. We don't have the kind of theocratic state of Israel which everyone has to belong to. We're saved because of what Jesus has done. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. That's why in Romans 7 he says this, My brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, who, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's suppose that you have an addiction to internet pornography. It easily happens. We meet up, we talk about it. If I say to you, just stop it, just stop it. Or it may be that there are other issues that you have. Say, stop it, stop it. You're addicted to drink, just stop it. it you, can, you can resolve, you can say, I'm going to stop it. I'm not going to do it. 
but you inevitably will go back because the law won't stop you. The sinful passions aroused by the law at work in us, the problem is much deeper. There's something deep within us that causes us that way. And it's like, I'm never going to lose my temper again. I'm never going to do this. These are really, really good resolutions. But unless there's a fundamental heart change, we will fall back into old habits. But now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released. So we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Jesus tells the story of how a, a demon is taken out of a, somebody and they, the house is swept clean and they go and they wander around in the desert and they get six of their mates and they come back and they come into the nice clean house. You've got to have something that expels the evil and it has to be something positive and something good and it's Christ and his spirit. Christ is the very embodiment of the law. Matthew 5, 17. Think not that I've come to abolish the law and prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, let me just unpack this just a little bit before we finish. Lots and lots of religious people do not get Christ, including lots and lots of people who say that they are Christians. They believe in God. They have faith in the sense that they want to do good, but they just don't get Christ. And especially, they don't get this, Christ in relation to the law. Christ is the end of the law. They might even say, we believe in Jesus. We believe he is the son of God. We like his teaching. But they are not interested in his death on the cross. It's unpleasant. It's, it's miserable. That's the bit of Christianity we don't really like. If only Jesus was just a really, really good teacher. Even if he is the son of God, fine. But all, all the stuff about the cross, that's too much. But this is what we are told. Christ is the end of the law, so there may be righteousness. Look at the clause. For everyone who believes. For everyone who believes. You can be baptized. You can come to church. You can read the Bible. You can pray. You can, inverted commas, believe in God in the sense of believe that there is a God and that God is going to do good for you and so on. And yet, and you can be really zealous for all of that. You can be zealous for your tradition. You can be zealous for your church. You can be zealous for your family. You can be zealous for what you believe. But without Christ... It's, it's not enough. In fact, it only causes harm. You know, there are people who are very zealous about things. I'm not making a political point here, but you could be very for Scotland being independent. You could be a Scottish nationalist. You could be really zealous for it. And you find out what that's like when you upset people online who, who are like that. You can be a British nationalist. You want Britain to be out of the EU. And they, they get very, very upset if, if you question them. You can be a, an EU nationalist. I never thought there was such a thing, but there is. You can wave your flag with, a, with the stars on it and, and everything else. And when, when you're questioned, you can be really zealous and get really angry. You can be a religious zealot. And it really does 
so much harm. And you can be a Christian who's zealous about some things, but not about Christ. You've forgotten Christ. I think of um, one man I know to re- recently who was telling me he works beside a Christian who's a very zealous Christian, he says. And you hang your washing net on a Sunday, you're going to hell. But he swears like a trooper. Oh, what a strange combination. He's zealous for one thing and not for others. And that's because we're missing the very thing that we need most of all, to be zealous for Jesus Christ, to love Jesus Christ, to follow Jesus Christ. Let me apply this in two ways. For those of us who are Christians, there's a great assurance here. You are guilty. I am guilty. The law of God, pure and holy, condemns me. And the devil comes to me and says, you are guilty. He is the accuser of the brothers and sisters. My own heart condemns me. My own heart, when it's facing up to reality, causes you to want to shrink away and say, you are condemned, you are condemned, you are condemned. But, That's why this verse is so important. Christ is the end of the law. Christ has fulfilled it in every respect. And as a Christian, I am in Christ. So, when the devil condemns me, I'm saying, no, no, no. Christ is the end of the law. Christ has paid. Christ has paid. Jesus paid it all, we sometimes sing. When my heart condemns me, I'm not suddenly going to say, oh, no, it's okay, everything's fine, I feel great about myself. But I am going to turn from my own heart and how I feel, and I'm going to say to my heart, I'm going to say to myself, but Christ is the end of the law. Christ fulfilled the law. Christ took all my sin. Christ paid for it all. He's the end of the law, that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And there's this extraordinary statement that because you believe and trust in Jesus as a Christian, you are as righteous before God as Christ is. That is extraordinary. And I I know that almost no Christian here really believes that because we don't live like that. It's an extraordinary truth. It's one that would cause us to to weep in in joy and, and worship. And it's the most extraordinary motivator for serving Jesus Christ. And you come here today and As a Christian this week, you've failed. You've lost your temper. You've done things you shouldn't have done. You've said things you shouldn't have done. You've not been what you should have been. But because of Christ, and because Christ is the end of the law, you're free. You're not condemned. Your chains have gone. You can start this new week on this Lord's Day afresh and anew. But let me finish just with with this for those of you who are not yet Christians. Please back off from the notion that somehow you can contribute to your own salvation. Back off from the idea that somehow something magical has to happen to you so that you're elevated to another status. You know, you've got an absolutely brilliant thing here. And it's a Jesus who stands before you, arms open wide, saying, you come to me, I've fulfilled the law, I've done it, you can't do it in any way whatsoever. 
you submit to Christ's righteousness. You, you say, okay, do you know this? I'm not going to try and do it anymore. I'm not going to try and save myself. I'm not going to try and be religious. I'm not going to pretend to be something that I'm not. I'm just simply going to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In the words of the hymn that we're going to sing in a moment, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that that thou bids me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. I love that hymn, and I'll tell you why I love it. It's, I know it's always associated with Billy Graham and the rallies and all, all the rest of it, and people unwisely, I think, mock the altar call. I love it because it's such a beautiful, beautiful invitation that summarizes the gospel. And when we sing it, my hope and prayer is that you will sing it with meaning, you will mean it, that you will sing it with feeling, you will sing it with understanding. That's it. That's how do you become a Christian? You become a Christian by giving up your own righteousness and accepting the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, we said at the beginning, you need knowledge. That's what you need to know. If you've got any questions or want to ask anything, please feel free uh, to ask at the end. But you know, in, in, in one way, Christianity is not that difficult. The smallest child can get it. Sometimes people put obstacles in the way which are not really there. You want to follow Christ, then come to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the beauty of the gospel. Thank you for this extraordinary statement that you, Lord Jesus Christ, are the end of the law. You're the purpose of the law. You're the fulfillment of the law. Lord, we confess that sometimes we're very zealous for ourselves. We're zealous for many things that we believe in, but we don't have that zeal and love for you because we don't know you. And we pray, our God, that you would grant us that knowledge and that your spirit would be at work within the hearts of each one of us. Those of us who as yet don't know you, that we would come to know you even as we finish this service. And those of us who do know you, grant, O oh God, that we would never be complacent, never turn our back on you, but always walk into the arms of Jesus. For we ask it in your name. Amen. We're going to finish by singing that song. And as I've said,